0: There will be quite a few Bible verses this morning, um, and I thought and prayed about this that it would be appropriate to give the page reference numbers from our Pew Bibles as well, just in case there's anybody here who's not familiar with where to find things. So I will be making reference to the Pew uh, Bible page numbers as well as the chapters and verses. So uh, If you can make good use of that, that would be great. But please either make a note of the Bible verses or in real time find them and read them as well because I think it's important that you are like the Bereans. We're all like the Bereans and that we search the Scriptures to see if what we are saying here is actually of God. Okay? All right, please. let's, Let's pray. Father, we've come to this passage which is a well-known, famous passage. And we know, Lord, that there may well be a sense of, we know this already. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be with me today and be with us all. Open our minds and our hearts to receive what you would want us to receive. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to receive Jesus afresh. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, I ask and pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to them today. Let them see Jesus in a way that they never realized was possible. May Jesus come alive to them, Lord, in their hearts, we pray in your name, amen. So it's nighttime in Jerusalem. The frantic, busy city streets have been hushed. And now there is a calm and a stillness. In the warm air of Jerusalem. Jesus has, as he has often done before, retreated to a solitary place to spend the night. But this night would be different. This night would see an encounter and an exchange of words that would change the world forever. <coughs> the solitary listener to Jesus' words that night was an intellectual who earnestly studied at the temple in Jerusalem. His whole life centered around the sacred site that Paul told us about last week. Jesus' visitor was a devout Pharisee who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling legal council that was effectively the supreme court of the Jewish people. His name, Nicodemus. Its meaning... Of course, comes from the Greek, as all of the great words do in the Bible. (laughs) Victory of the people, Nicodemus, victory of the people, which I believe is a very beautiful play on a theme in this passage. Nicodemus, the man, victory of the people, has a heart-to-heart conversation with Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who would make the provision of victory for all the people. Nicodemus was an educated man, a man of wealth and a man of influence. He occupied one of the most important positions in society and everything in his background, everything in his status, everything that he had learned and shared from as a member of Sanhedrin told him not to make this visit to meet with Jesus. You see, the Sanhedrin... The council that Nicodemus was a member of was opposed to Jesus. And, of course, Jesus' claims. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus had always believed that he stood on the side of God. The side of integrity for God's law. And Jesus appeared to be in constant conflict with the Pharisees, opposing them and what they stood for. Now, if Jesus was, in fact, a good man, how could this be? Yet despite this, Nicodemus was drawn to Jesus. He knew that the questions that he wanted answering could only be answered by Jesus. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been afraid of what your peers might think (coughs) of you? If you deviated from the norm and followed a new course of action? Well, that's exactly the position that Nicodemus was in. Despite his questions his nagging fears and his fears of his peers and what they might say, he knew that if he was going to seek the answers he wanted answering, the questions he wanted answering. He needed to speak with Jesus. And so Nicodemus chose to come to Jesus by night. And just like a well thought out opening move in a strategic game of chess, (coughs) Nicodemus begins his conversation, recorded in John chapter 3, with Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. At the heart of Nicodemus' question, or his statement rather, is the desire to know the true identity of God. He wants to know the true identity of Jesus. He acknowledges that Jesus has God with him, but really, he wants to drill down to exactly who Jesus is. Now we must remember that most of Nicodemus's elite circle regarded Jesus as a problem rather than a teacher, come from God. So Nicodemus's statement here is quite extraordinary, if you actually put it into context. Yet Jesus didn't question Nicodemus' motives. He didn't rebuke him for coming to him at night. Jesus simply replied in verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus would have been taken aback by this, taken aback by, Jesus answer, possibly even offended. Unless one is born again, what was Jesus talking about? Now, Nicodemus' response in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, this comes across as churlish, to say the very least, doesn't it? Because in actuality, as a dedicated student of the Scriptures, Nicodemus would have understood the concept of rebirth. You see, according to the Jews, being a descendant of Abraham was a virtual guarantee of salvation. In Nicodemus's time, Jews believed that only non-Jews needed to be saved by rebirth into the family of Abraham. The Jewish priests themselves spoke of Gentile converts as children just born, and they used the same metaphor To describe a bridegroom at his marriage and the king at his enthronement. Nicodemus would have been unhappy with the insinuation. Jesus was effectively telling him, a leader in Israel, that he needed to be born again. That in fact, being a child of Abraham was not enough. That there was in fact something very wrong with his and all of our births. You see, there is something wrong with Nicodemus' birth and with my birth and with your birth. You see, God is holy. And since the fall in Genesis, all of humanity is sinful. We are all sinful. Psalms chapter 51, verse 5, which you'll find on page 443 of the Pew Bibles, Psalms 51 verse 5 tells us, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. If you have a New International Version with you, it expresses it even more simply. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Just like David, you and I And every person who has ever been born was born sinful. Since our first parents, Adam and Eve, it's a condition that we all share. We are all natural born sinners. Page 884, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners, no matter how good we think we are in our own eyes. Not as bad as that person, not as bad as that person. (coughs) doesn't matter how good you think you are in your own eyes. We can never match up to God's perfect and holy standard in and of ourselves. But friends, if you thought that was bad enough, it gets worse. Not only are we all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, page 887, the first part of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Romans 6, 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Sin pays, and it pays with death. Eternal damnation from God. But there is hope. Because in that same verse that we've just read, Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the second part of that same verse tells us "But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the best news ever. Yeah? That's got to be the best news ever. I deserve death but God offers me a free gift of eternal life in his son, Christ Jesus. Because God does not want you, me, or anyone else to die in our sin. He made a way for us to be saved by his son. God's desire and plan is that you should not die in your sin. He wants you to repent which is to express sincere regret and remorse about the, our sin. And to put our faith in his son, Christ Jesus. And that's why he sent his son. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for you. To die for me. To die for this whole world. Page 959. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Tells us that he, talking about Jesus is repitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Those of you in here who know Jesus, he died for your sins. But those out there who do not know him, and those in here who do not know him, as their saviour, he died for your sins too. The same author who wrote the Gospel of John, tells us in his letter to the church, he, Jesus, is a appreciation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came and paid the price for the sins of the whole world. This, my friends, is amazing news. If we're not excited by this news, I don't know what will. Friends, if you're here today and you haven't accepted Jesus... ...and you haven't put your trust in him... ...don't delay... ...it's no coincidence... ...that of all the places that you could have been... ...you are here right now... ...it's no coincidence... ...it's a God instance... ...God has brought you here for a reason... ...he's reaching out to you... ...through his spirit... ...to accept his free gift of eternal life... ...and it begins with repentance... ...but know this... ...when it comes to repentance... The opportunity that God has given us to repent will not last forever. Turn with me, please, to page 958. That's 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 9. And it tells us there on page 958. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead he is patient with you not wanting any to perish but everyone to come to repentance instead he is patient with you wanting everyone to wanting not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance god wants everyone to come to repentance Not just some, everyone. Jesus' death was for Nicodemus, Jesus' death was for me, and Jesus' death is for you. Page 872, Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, tells us that he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. God is planning to judge the world, but he wants us to repent first so we can be part of his kingdom. And the invitation is for all. God invites us all to repent and to come to him. Now we need to be absolutely clear about this because perhaps some of us are a little confused. Jesus made it very clear to Nicodemus That to be born again is not a work that we can do ourselves. It's only the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as John describes, is just like wind. It can't be seen. We can't see the wind. But the (laughs) effects of it, we can. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit can't be seen by our eyes or our senses. But we can see the effect of him in the lives of those that he has transformed and is transforming. And at the end of his gospel, John told us that the words that he wrote were so that we can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and by believing that we may be saved. And when we hear or read the gospel, we're confronted with Jesus and we must make a decision. Are we going to accept who Jesus is and what God offers us or are we going to reject it? Yet again, the Holy Spirit seeks us out and convicts us of our sin and our need of a Savior, and we must respond one way or another. Are we going to accept Him or are we going to reject Him? And in conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus used an illustration that would be very familiar to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as we said, was a student of scriptures. And he was very familiar with this illustration that Jesus shared. And it's the account of Moses lifting up a bronze serpent on a pole and the Israelites being healed because they would look at the serpent on the pole that was lifted up for them to see. Now you can find a story in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and that's page 120 in the Pew Bibles. Just a short passage there. And it's well worth the read if you haven't already read it before. It's the story of how the Israelites, who had been led from Egypt and were travelling to the Promised Land. And while they were on this journey, they got discouraged by, while being led by God in the desert. And really, because of their unbelief, they murmured against God. They grumbled against God and against Moses for bringing them into the wilderness. But they had forgotten that it was because of their own sin that had caused them to be there for the time that they were. And they tried to blame Moses instead. Isn't that the old way, you know? We're responsible, we blame someone else for our downfall. And as a judgement against the people and against their sin, God sent poisonous serpents into the camp and the people began to die. Now, this showed the people that they were the ones in sin. And that they came to Moses, and then they came to Moses to confess their sin and ask for God's mercy. When Moses prayed for the people, God instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole so that people could be healed. And I believe that God was teaching the people something about faith here. You see, it's totally illogical to think that looking at a bronze image could heal someone from snake bite. But that is exactly what God told them to do. It took an act of faith in God's plan for everyone to be healed. And the serpent on the stick was a reminder of their sin, which brought about their suffering. But back in John chapter 3, verses 14, and the reference that Jesus made to this serpent indicated that this bronze serpent of the Exodus was a foreshadowing of him, Christ the Messiah. The serpent, a symbol of sin and judgment, was lifted up from earth and put on a tree, which according to Galatians 3, verse 13, was a symbol of a curse. The cursed and lifted up serpent symbolized Jesus, who takes away sin from everyone who would look to him in faith. Just like the Israelites had to look to the raised symbol in the wilderness. Page 845, that's John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus himself says these words, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Indicating here the nature in which he would die on a cross, and ultimately the purpose. For what he was being lifted up for was to make salvation available to all humankind. Page 908, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Paul reminds us that Jesus became a curse for us. Although he was blameless and sinless, the spotless Lamb of God. God made him, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did this for us. He did this for you. As the conversation continued between Jesus and Nicodemus, and Nicodemus ultimately headed back home to Jerusalem, in his home in Jerusalem, he faced a question that we must all face What am I going to do about Jesus? What am I going to do with Jesus? For three years, Nicodemus pondered on this one singular encounter with Jesus. And wrestled with his decision. To be born again means to start all over. Believe in Jesus and accept him as your saviour. For the Holy Spirit to make an inner change within you. Birthing you as a child of God with a new life in Jesus. And Nicodemus faced a choice. An all important (laughs) choice. It was a choice between remaining a questioning sceptic. Or becoming a follower of Jesus. A choice between remaining where he was or entering into a whole new life. You see, it's not enough for us to have a head knowledge of Jesus. Memorising facts and Bible passages, that's not what it's about. It's about him touching our hearts, touching our lives, transforming us from within And if we're not allowing God in here, then what we're experiencing isn't true faith because true faith changes a person from the inside. And this is the dilemma that Nicodemus faced. He had all the head knowledge of the Jewish law and custom, but he knew that there was something missing. There was a God-shaped vacuum in his heart that no amount of study could fulfill. The proud Pharisee wanted to justify himself, but the honest seeker of truth within him wanted to be taught. And if we fast forward from that encounter, that night in Jerusalem, three years, and in John chapter 19, a few pages down from where we are, John chapter 19 tells of Jesus the Galilean. Dying on a Roman cross. And the colleagues of Nicodemus were circling that cross, mocking their seemingly defeated enemy. They suggested that if he was really such a miracle worker, that he should come down from the cross and save himself. The Sanhedrin had rejected Jesus. Later, Stephen, who was a deacon of the church in Jerusalem, would call out the religious leaders for their sin of rejecting Jesus through the call of the Holy Spirit. Page 861, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. While Stephen was being, just before, moments before Stephen was being stoned he turns around to the religious leaders and says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. The Holy Spirit had been pleading with the Jewish leaders to accept Jesus, but instead they resisted the grace of God. And at that moment, stood at the foot of the cross, Nicodemus could no longer join them. He'd seen something noble and compassionate in the way Jesus treated others, in the way that he forgave, in the way that he died. Nicodemus finally looked on this Christ in terms of his own need of a saviour. Standing there at the foot of the cross, he realised that his sin was just too heavy a burden for him to bear always trying to defend himself with obedience to the law. It was just too wearisome a struggle for him to cope with. Always hiding behind the truth of the law was too self-defeating. It was time to let the truth sink into his own heart. You must be born again. And so Nicodemus took a very public big step. He hurried back into Jerusalem and purchased 75 pounds in weight of a mixture of myrrh and aloes, the spices used for embalming. And he came back to the cross bearing these gifts. Another colleague from the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, had received permission from Pilate to bury the body of Jesus. And so as the other members of the Sanhedrin watched in shock, horror, and amazement, Joseph and Nicodemus gently took Jesus' body down from the cross and they wrapped Jesus in burial clothes along with the myrrh and the aloes. Then they reverently carried him to Joseph's tomb. And as Nicodemus carried the noblest person that he'd ever known, he knew that Jesus was the one who changed everything for him. Right there at the foot of the cross, Nicodemus stepped out in faith and he broke free from the slavery of sin the law and the Sanhedrin that they embraced and he finally now embraced the love of the saviour. But how about you? We're at the foot of the cross. Jesus has been lifted up high for our sins. And his spirit is calling us, pleading with us to repent and enter into a relationship with him. Don't be a stiff necked people. Like the Pharisees who resisted the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. Accept his love into your heart. If you're struggling with who Jesus is, if you're struggling with the weight of your own life and the burden of sin, then come to Jesus and experience God's unconditional love. Accept the invitation to be born again and become a child of God. Now, if you'll permit me, I'd like to share an illustration about what it means to be born again with the use, if I may, of two bottles. I have two bottles. Instantly recognisable. When I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to drink Coca-Cola. Sinful. So we'll have this one representing um, an ordinary life that um, doesn't know God. <coughs> and here, of course, we have a milk bottle. Back when I was a kid, of course, they were glass and they beautiful shape. now they're plastic, which is, I suppose, a step forward, I don't know. But let's imagine now that I want to make this bottle. I want to transform it and change it, and I want to make it this bottle. Well, I could maybe tinker with the outside and try to make some changes. Perhaps if I got a Sharpie pen and wrote on here. There you go. I've changed it. It's now a milk bottle. Why? Because I've written milk on the outside. No. No, that's not going to work. What if I were to try to bash and change. Uh, you know, bash it with a hammer or something just to try to change its shape so it looked more like this. Would that make it a milk bottle? No. No, the only way that this is going to become a milk bottle is if we change what's inside. It needs to be changed from the inside out. And when it's changed from the inside out, you can see what it is. You can see straight away that what it once was, it no longer is. It is now a milk bottle. And that it is filled with this milk, the nourishing, life-giving milk. And that's what it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, you won't change yourself. I will change you from within. And guess what? People will see the change within you. And they will glorify God as a result. Why don't we all consider, if we haven't already done so, opening our hearts to Jesus and the invitation to be a part of his kingdom and to be transformed by the spirit of God living within us. That's my prayer, my earnest prayer for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we recognize, Lord, that we cannot save ourselves. We need to be born again. We know, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is what creates and causes that new birth. So, Father, we ask and pray that you will be with us now. As your Holy Spirit is speaking to each heart right now, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, but you are calling them right now, I ask and pray that you'll put it into their heart to respond to you. That they will say yes to you and allow you to come in and transform them from within. Father, I ask and pray that you be with us who know you, who have accepted you into our hearts and our lives and who have allowed the Holy Spirit in. Father, we ask and pray that you'll be with each of us as well, that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, because we know that we need more of you in our lives each day. Equip us with what we need so we can boldly go and proclaim to the ends of the earth and around the corner where we are the good news of your saving grace for a dying world. Father, we just pray now. We pray for an outpouring of your spirit. You know each heart, you know each mind, you know what we need, Lord, more than anything. We are not worthy of your amazing love, but we thank you, we thank you, we thank you that you do. Bless us, Lord, to this end, Lord, and Father, we just pray that we'll come together after this service. We'll be able to meet together and speak with anyone, Lord, who wants to commit their lives to you. Father, your spirit is seeking out, seeking out your children. Open our hearts to you, we pray, Lord.